probably some of the best preachers that have ever existed. There was a church, this church, that would not put up with any whiff of false teaching. Strong in the word, strong in doctrine. If somebody came through teaching something that was contrary to God's word, they would not even give them a second to speak their words. This church worked hard. They cared about their doctrine and their teaching. And they persevered even through some very difficult trials when that teaching was flying in the face of the rest of the world around them. So far, so good. Does this sound like a good church? One that you might want to attend? Church that cares about the Bible? About good sound doctrines? Not false teachings and whatever wind and wave of doctrine comes by, but they really want to be centered around the truth about Jesus. But this church is no more. It literally does not exist. It has died. There are no people that gather in a home or a building. This church has lost, as we will hear from the words of Jesus its lamp, its light to shine in the world. And now in its place stands rubble where a church building once stood and no gospel. In this church where it used to exist, the name of Allah is prayed to as the Muslim call to prayer is given regularly. It is now dominated by Islam. And this is not to try and say all Islamic people are the worst people in the world. That's not what that comment is to say. It's to say that there is now no Jesus at all. In what used to be, in what used to seem like a really strong, vibrant church. What happened? That's what we're going to find out this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you're using any of these black Bibles in front of you, I'd encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to grab one of these. Revelation's easy to find. It's the last book in the Bible. It'll be found on page 1028. This morning, we're going to continue our studies through the first three chapters of Revelation, particularly focused on chapters 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we're going to look at this church that I just described to you a moment ago. What happened? How did it lose its life? And there is now no more church. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know 
you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yes, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This series I'm going to call Jesus Marks of a Healthy Church. Before we dive into the marks that we're going to see from this section of Scripture and this letter written to Ephesus, I want to give a few observations, five to be in fact. These are more introductory observations before we get into all of the different letters, so hopefully these things will be helpful not just for this morning, but weeks to come. First, simple observation, there are seven letters. This is the first of the seven letters. And if you know that this book is apocalyptic and it is prophetic and you know that that means there's lots of symbols and that numbers probably aren't necessarily only literal numbers, that they have symbolic meaning, then it's probably best to understand this seven as the symbolic number of completion. So therefore, it seems best to understand this as the total churches in existence. Observation number two. There's a similar structure for all of the letters. Just glance with me at all these letters. You see, hopefully, if you have an English Bible, you'll see a little heading above each of the letters. So first, to the church in Ephesus. Notice it says, to the angel of the church in, and then fills in the blank of the place. Then the next part of the structure is a sentence that we looked at last week in each of these letters that refers back to a description about the Son of Man who is Jesus, so a description about Jesus. Each of them have different descriptions. Then you'll see a phrase, notice in verse 2, and then in verse 9, and then in verse 13, and following in each letter, the first phrase in the letter is, I know. I know, and then fill in the blank, something about you. And for several of the letters, he's going to say good things about the church. I know some good things about your church. For two of the letters, he's going to say nothing good about the church. And he's going to say, I know that you are not very good as a church and unhealthy. And so we're going to walk through and see through these statements of Jesus, I know this, I know that, and we'll take principles from them. Several of them talk about the need for the church to repent, and that's in many of these letters. And then look lastly, all of the letters end the way verse 7 ended in chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then the last thing is some sort of promise about conquering and the promise of eternal life. That's the basic structure of all seven letters with different accounts for each one. So, third observation. Even though there are seven letters, and there's a similar structure in all these seven letters, it seems like these are actually historical churches. 
As far as we can tell from studying church history and even just reading your Bible well, you'll know that there was a church in Ephesus. And Paul, the apostle, started that church and then later passed it on to Timothy. And there was a guy named Apollos who was known as one of the best preachers in the book of Acts. He preached there. And that's why I said earlier that this is probably one of the best preachers were there in this church. This was like the the celebrity pastors, if you wanted to put it that way. And everybody wanted to hear them teach God's word. These guys brought it, if you want to put it that way. Historically, it seems as if there are accurate things that are being said about these places, and these historical places are going to help us better interpret and understand even the words of Jesus themselves. But because this is, again, symbolic, notice the way I read in verse 7, churches. Let the ear who can hear, hear what the Spirit says, not just to the church in Ephesus, but to the churches. This letter is occasionally written for historical setting in Ephesus, but it is written to you, Embassy Church. It is universally given to all churches for all of us to glean principles for what the church should look like according to none other than Jesus himself. So observation number four, as we work through these, I would like you to realize that there will be things that we will observe about ourselves that you might, in your estimation, think, I think embassy is doing well in that area. And there might be things that we might be pierced to realize, ooh, we could grow in that area. And I don't want you to just focus on the strengths and then look at those churches that are doing poorly and they're tolerating sexual immorality and you're like, well, we don't do that. We're so much better than them. That's a bad way to read the Bible, you know? Always thinking about the people that are out there. Let's let all of these words be received and be encouraged by our strengths and be challenged by our weaknesses. And the last and final comment I want to say is that I think we should take all seven letters as an entire unit and hear what they all say as these sermons build off of each other. So not just one message, oh, which church are we most like? Are we most like Ephesus or Pergamum or Laodicea and Jesus wants to spit us out of his mouth, you know? Let's take all of them. Hopefully we're not like that last one, as we'll get to in the last, Lord willing. So let's dive in. The first letter, Mark number one, a healthy church cares about the truth. I hope this seems obvious to you. I don't think it needs a whole lot of explanation, but I want to just show you where I'm getting this from God's Word. This isn't from Phil or some other Bible teacher. This is from Jesus. Jesus says, I know that you work hard, that you toil. These words are actually very literally explanations of you work till exhausted. So these are hard-working church members. More specifically, we're told what kind of hard work that they are doing and laboring in. It says they do not tolerate evil. They do not put up with more specifically false teachers. Notice verse 3. You you have endurance and you patiently put up with my name. So you're happy to bear the name of Jesus and you don't grow weary in this. But you do not put up with people who are false apostles. In verse 2. 
You could say these people care about their preachers and their teachers and who preaches on Sunday morning. They care about the books that they read and hand out on Sunday morning before church service starts. You could say that they have solid Bible classes before even breakfast hour and they teach doctrine and theology and they want you to grow deeply in God's word in expanding your mind and your heart with those things. You could say that this church cares about truth in a way that they do not put up with the Nicolaitans. Did you notice that? This is, this is a strange thing. I think for modern hearers in the age of tolerance and everything should just be okay and Jesus is just warm and lovey-dovey, you do not like, you in fact hate the teaching and the works of the Nicolaitans. And then notice this little phrase from Jesus, I also hate Whoa, 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 Jesus, that's a little strong, but is it? If you love the truth from God, then you hate people who are maligning and distorting and teaching falsehood. And this church is being commended. Notice he doesn't say, okay, now you have a problem here with this love, which we'll get to in just a second. So what you need to do is tone down on doctrine. Tone down on truth because you care too much about the truth. No, he's commending them for their love for the truth. I hope you're seeing that in this text. A mark of a healthy church to Jesus is a church that loves solid Bible teaching and studying the Bible and reading it. Without sound doctrine, you lose Jesus. See, some people want to say, no, I don't like doctrine, and I don't think that it's good for us to get into theological depths. Let's just make everything really simple and basic, and let's stay away from those things because that's when people get divisive and and nasty, and it creates all kinds of divisions in the church because, well, we don't know how did God do this or that, and there's just mysteries. Oh, let's just leave that all up to God, and let's not really grow deep in God's Word. Let's skip over that passage. If we stop caring about doctrine, then we will lose Jesus. And if you weren't here last week, we don't want to lose Jesus. We want Jesus to be the center of our church. We want everything to revolve around him. So if we lose the teaching about who Jesus is, then we've lost Jesus. So let me give a real story about how a church From my wife and I's experience, before we were married, when we were dating, we were in college, and we were visiting churches trying to figure out where we were going to land. Here's an example of a church, Christian church, that lost Jesus. We walk in, and immediately, we're greeted, and it was nice. They were kind. And then somebody noticed that my wife had a certain translation of the Bible. Oh, what do you got there? Oh, it's a so-and-so translation? Oh, well, here, you need this Bible. This one is a better translation. Immediately, we're a little, hmm, this seems different. Then, we heard the pastor say, because there were a few different ladies in the church service, including my wife, (coughs) and they were wearing pants. The pastor then went on to preach a sermon that said, women, you better go home and burn your pants or you're going to go to hell. 
Okay, that's a bit extreme, but that's real. Like, that's not a fake story. I'm not really embellishing it. Ask Christine later. That's a true story. Apparently, in order to be a member of Jesus' church, you need to not wear pants if you're a woman, and you must have the right Bible translation. Are you starting to see that if you lose sound teaching, you'll end up giving people something that's completely contrary to the grace and mercy that is offered to Jesus in the gospel? They have lost the gospel, and they have instead replaced it with what is called legalism. Your right standing before God is dependent on your Bible translation and your dress code. Embassy Church, may it be known to all that we would encourage modesty, but we have no dress code, and you should feel free to wear whatever would be appropriate for the occasion. If you're wearing pants, ladies, feel free to wear pants. If you're wearing shorts, feel free to wear shorts, etc., etc., you are accepted not on the basis of your performance and even your appropriateness. Even if someone were to walk in here and they were inappropriately dressed, would we not want them to hear about the gospel? And hear how the gospel can transform your life and help you care about morality and how we dress? Not go home and burn your pants, cover up your immodest. This is a good example of that's not the gospel. And if you have false teaching, well, you can lose Jesus and make everything just about rules or legalism. That's just one example. There's many other examples. One of the things I was struck by, if you notice, look down again at verse 6. Jesus doesn't just say that he hates the false teachers. He names them. He, he names them. Now, there's lots of debates and discussions amongst church history, theologians, pastors, scholars. Who are the Nicolaitans? What, what is it that is so detestable that they hate? We'll actually see more about them next week, so I'm going to save most of those comments for next week in terms of their depths. But I think the basic point we're trying to make here is that Jesus hates false teachers, and he will even call them out by name so everybody knows, yeah, those people, you should not put up with them. So, I am not Jesus, but as your pastor, I would like to encourage you to not ever buy, read, share, listen to with some sort of this is good, anything from Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, anybody that's pretty much on TBN television and Trinity Broadcasting Network, if you don't even have the channel, just don't go there. All of those teachings are prosperity gospel. And anytime you add an adjective before gospel, you lose Jesus in the gospel. There's just one gospel. It's that Jesus is our Savior and he gives us life and that we die to ourselves as we repent of our sins and we trust in Jesus. These people teach a message that if you give money to our ministry, God's going to bless you with all your wildest dreams come true. That, my friends, is horrible. I can't watch those things and not start getting angry and want to break my TV and be like, no, they're leading. And, and so here's, here's the sad part about this, okay? Now, some of you I know, you're like, I don't care about any of that stuff anyway. Your heart should break when you go and Google search 
the top 50 best-selling books in Christianity today. There's a Christian bestseller book list, and all of these people I just listed are all selling millions upon millions of books. And my guess is you know somebody, if you have Christian friends, that are soaking this up, drinking it in, coworkers, friends, family members. I'm not telling you you need to be the police about those things, but in the spirit of what Jesus is saying, I want to make it clear that there are, by name, very famous, popular teachers like those, and they should not be listened to. Our church should be similar to what we heard about the first, second century church father, Ignatius, He says the church in Ephesus so loved the truth that they would not even give a hearing to the false teachers. That should be us. These men and women should not give a hearing to our ears. Let's hear God's word and its truth. And let's warn one another if we have been taken, led astray and been taken away from the truth of God's word. Embassy. Do you, corporately, want to grow in the truth of God's Word? Do you, individually, as members, even though you may never be a teacher or a Bible scholar, do you want to grow in your knowledge of doctrines? Now, I know that even as Stacy prayed, the whole church has different gifts. So, not all of us have the gift of teaching. Not all of us should be teachers. In fact, James chapter 3 says, not all of you should be teachers. So that makes it pretty straightforward. But Ephesians 4 was written to this church, Ephesus, that was read earlier when Stacy read it. And it says that we want to have the pastors to equip all the saints to do the work of the ministry so that the whole congregation is being built up and strengthened and not being tossed back and forth when every Joel Osteen sermon comes on or the next big Rob Bell movement comes and he says hell doesn't exist and we say, no, 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 we're strong in God's word and we as a church can love each other by speaking the truth in love about these matters. Do you long, that, long for that for yourself? Jesus says a healthy church should care about the truth. That's Mark number one. Now, before we get to Mark number two, I want to ask a simple question. If you've been around churches, you probably already know the answer. If you're really into doctrine and teaching, what's a temptation that you might be prone to? Answer, a lack of love. Mark number two, verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I have this against you. You have abandoned your love you had at first. Now, the most important question people might be wondering, maybe even you, well, love what? They obviously seem to love the Bible. They must even love Jesus. What is it that they're not loving? I think one of the clues is found later in verse 5 when it says, 
Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works that you did. And then look at that phrase again, at first. At first, you had great love, and that love led to great works. Most often, when the Bible, and John in particular, who we believe wrote other books of the Bible, when he talks about the love in the church, he's talking about tangible love of hospitality and caring for the poor and feeding the hungry and helping other Christians and persecuted brothers who are in prison. He's talking about that kind of love. And so he's telling them, repent and do those works. So it seems as if they don't love each other the same way. And I would say it's not really a pick and choose of, well, did they really love lose their love of Jesus or lose their love for one another? Well, how can you split those up? A lack of true and genuine love for Jesus will be displayed by a lack of love for his church, his bride. If you say you love Jesus, but you hate his bride, you don't care for, cherish, treasure his bride. How can you say you love Jesus? So I don't think we need to pick and choose. I think these two ideas are wrapped up in each other, but it's obvious that in his mind that there is a lack of tangible expression of that love. So let's tie the two points together. If we really care about doctrine and truth, that truth should transform our hearts to make us grow in our love for Jesus, and that spills out into love for one another in the church and in the community and in the world. And if that does not mark us as Christians, we may not be Christians. And Jesus says that soon enough we won't even be a church. What seemed like a growing, strong, vibrant, solid church existed no more, even to this very day on the western edge of Turkey where Ephesus is. Rubble, where churches used to be. And no Christianity whatsoever. I think it would be very easy for us to hammer this point and make you feel really guilty. You know, some of you have been Christians for a while and you're like, you know, I used to really be on fire for Jesus. And I'm not right now. And it would be very easy, I think, as the pastor to kind of overmake this point and make you feel like if you do not have the first kiss kind of love, oh, so dreamy, I love Jesus. He's everything to me. Now, that exists. Some of you, maybe your conversion story, you remember Jesus like your first date with somebody that you've had a crush on, and it's just like, he touched my hand. And you're just overwhelmed with this love, but then it kind of fades at times. And so married couples might know that experience of the honeymoon phase. And so this love at first, we could, as pastors and preachers, overpress you to be like, you need to be on a honeymoon constantly with Jesus. I just don't think that that's wise. In my own marriage, I can look back to my first dates with my wife, those first years of honeymoon. And they were sweet and wonderful, and I know what this passage is saying of like your first love, your first kiss. But at the same time, 
I think I can say with confidence that even though there's ups and downs and valleys, a healthy marriage should at least grow in love. And I'm not trying to return back to my honeymoon again and again. And No, God's taking hopefully our marriage to deeper depths and width of love. And I think it's the same for the church. If you're a Christian, yes, he tells us, as we'll see in just a second, to remember our first love. But he doesn't tell you to go back there necessarily and live in the honeymoon. I think our love should grow in greater depth even through the dark valleys that he's with us in the dark night of the soul when you're like, is Jesus really there? Your love will go deeper and wider when you find that even after 20 years of being a Christian and you still feel like you're struggling with some sin, that Jesus is still forgiving you. That's some deep love. Charles Spurgeon on this passage said, when we first loved the Savior, how earnest we were. There was not a single thing in the Bible that we did not think most precious. There was not one command that we did not think to be fine gold or choice silver. Again, how happy we used to be in God's ways. Our love was that of a happy character that we could sing all day long. But now... Our religion has lost its luster. The gold has become dim. You know that when you come to the table of the bread and the cup, you often come there not even enjoying it. There was a time when everything that was bitter was sweet. Whenever you heard God's word, it was precious to you. Again, when we were in our first love, what would we do for Christ? And now, how little. Some of the actions which we performed when we were young Christians and just recently converted, now we look back on them and they seem to be wild, exciting tales of adventure. I think that there's some good comments by Charles Spurgeon for us to consider as we look back through our life as a Christian and see the love that we ought to have. But I don't want you to hear me or even Jesus say, if you don't have the same flaming passion for Jesus, steady every single second of every day, that's a burden none of us can bear. And I don't believe Jesus is asking for it. I think he's just calling out a church that's telling them, You have lost your love for one another, and that is a direct result of not loving me. So you're one of those churches that is doing a really good job of keeping the world out of the church, but you're not doing a very good job of putting the church into the world. And we can't be that sort of church. One of the great marks of a church that's dying, that's losing its love, is when they don't love the people outside of the building, and they're constantly just bickering and fighting with one another inside the building trying to make sure that we all get the same ideas on the same page. Well, that's not going to happen, friends. We have a statement of faith about our doctrine, and it's three pages long, and it's somewhat lengthy in terms of what we believe, and we think that we should have strong doctrine as a church. But we also don't have a 50-page doctrine statement because we know we can't agree on everything. So as a church, we need to learn how to balance truth and love together, to agree to disagree, to know that some of you might have strong opinions on secondary matters that aren't the gospel, and you're just going to have to get over it, you know? You're just going to have to realize that we can't, as Christians, expect that heaven is already completely here now. 
We're all still sinners. We're all still growing. We're going to be patient and love one another and forgive each other. And so therefore, let's focus our energy and our attentions and not trying to correct all of us all the time, although we need to encourage and build up and disciple. But if we're committed to making disciples outside of these walls, and the more that we think about the nations that are lost and churches that we want to plant and the people that have never heard of Jesus, that will be a good sign that our love is strong. Churches that die often seem to lose that love first. So I want to encourage us as a church, corporately and individually, to love. Love God and His Word and grow in it with a steady, day in and day out, continual desire to know truth and let that truth transform you and make you a new person inside and out that leads to actions of love. I want you to think about your own life and ask, does this describe you? Do you as an individual, do you tend to lean more toward truth and doctrine and reading books and going to classes, but your compassion for those who are hurting, your generosity to the poor, and your love of the lost seems like it could use some help? Or are you the other way around? I think it's important for some of you that know that I as your pastor, have come from a ministry called the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. This ministry, started by Mark Dever, former pastor, is not trying to say all the healthy marks of the church. So I think we should be careful, even myself, that we don't promote Mark Dever and the marks of a healthy church. One of the reasons I want us to go through these passages of Scripture is so that all of us will make sure we're getting our marks of a healthy church from Jesus himself. And you know who would love that? Pastor Mark Dever. Because all he's been trying to do for the last 20 years and trying to teach me as I sat underneath of him is here's some marks that it seems like the church is weak in. But there's a lot of other things that the church has done well at talking about and understanding, so I'm not going to repeat those things. I'm going to focus in on these nine things. So realize if you ever hear any of that stuff, if you see us giving out those books, that is not the totality of the marks of a healthy church, but I do think we'll see them. Those marks talk about sound biblical teaching, expository preaching, biblical theology, a right understanding of the gospel, making sure that we have good, healthy church leaders, just like we saw in this passage. So those marks are, in fact, coming from what seems to be texts like this. But I want to I point something out. With all due respect to my mentor and Mark Dever himself, he has missed a big mark. The most important mark of the church is love. I don't think that that could be overstated or overdone. You could speak a thousand tongues. You could do the most mighty miracles. If you have love, you have nothing. Jesus is the one who says, we will be known by our love for one another. How can you say that you love God, but then you don't love your neighbor? I mean, on and on you go. The scriptures are replete and full of example after example that the church followers of Jesus should be known for our love for God that spills out to our love for one another. And that love for God marks how we should love one another. We don't have just an ambiguous love. It's a defined love, a love like Jesus loves. And that love includes hating things that Jesus hates. 
So we can't just say because we're about love, we just love everything. You can't say you love your children and you also love child molestation. No, you don't. You hate child molestation. You would fear the thought. That would be awful. You hate that idea and that thought, and let's stop talking about it. And so it is with Jesus. And so should it be for us. So I want to conclude with the way this letter concludes. And so if any of you are here this morning and you're wondering, well, what should I do if I'm struggling in my love in particular? We're told three things from Jesus. Verse 5. First, we're told to remember. Remember where you have fallen. Remember. I think it's extremely important that each and every one of you get drilled into your mind that one of the most important ways for you to grow in your love and grow as a Christian is not to learn new things. New things are often Nicolaitan things, bad things. This church is a celebration of old sayings and teachings. We like old truths, not new, modern, updated, well, let's make a new Bible. We like the old stuff, and not for tradition's sake. What I'm trying to say is that we like something that's 2,000 years old. It's called Jesus' cross, his resurrection. And some of you might be like, well, I've heard that before. That's old. It's not new. Give me something new, Pastor Phil. And and I'm going to disappoint you here for a minute. The most important thing that I could give you is not something new, like teach you a Greek word this morning. Ooh, I can go home and show off to my friends. I now know something in the Bible that I didn't know before. Oh, the biggest takeaway every Sunday should be something that you've already heard before. My job as your pastor is to help you remember. Remember where you have fallen. Remember that you once were a sinner. Somebody that God would have said, I hate Phil. I hate the works of Phil. Howell. I hate the way he does not love me. I hate what he stands for. But that same God who hates the evil in my heart is the same God who loves me. Strange thing that he can both hate and love all at the same time. He's not like you and me. He's a complex God. Not a human being that fickly turns, well, do I hate or do I love? No, he can hate evil and love you, the sinner, all in the same moment, and he shows that by dying on a cross for your sins. Do you remember that? Do you remember this morning as we take the bread and the cup that Jesus gave his life for you? What did Jesus tell us to do when the bread and the cup is passed by? He said to do what? Remember. So every week, this is not a tradition that we just must do because Jesus commands us. That's what it sounds like Ephesian church is like, isn't it? They take the bread, they take the cup. Okay, remember, going through the motions. No, we want to weekly be reminded and remember, Christ died for me, an ungodly sinner. I want you to remember this morning. Do you remember those first moments of when it clicked? 
And if you didn't have one of those moments, do you remember the season of life when things started to fan the flame of your joy that Jesus does in fact forgive you all your sins, past, present, future sins that you don't even know that you're going to commit that he knew, but he paid for them all on the cross? Do you remember when that word, that one beautiful word started to wash over you? Grace. The God of the Bible is a God of grace. He isn't demanding perfection. He isn't asking that we work hard enough and pay for our sins. No, no, they've all been paid on the cross. Do you remember those days? I think like anniversaries, we need to go back and remember those moments in our Christian life and remember. Remember how we have fallen even after becoming a Christian. Remember the heights from which we've fallen. You used to be so much more in love with Jesus. Now, why was that? Remember why you had so much love. Now, why don't you have that love? You've fallen away from that love. So that's the first thing. Remember how God has saved you. Remember your testimony. Remember the gospel. And remember that there was a day, if you're a Christian here, where the love and grace of Jesus compelled you, changed you, encouraged you. And if that feels cold today, if it feels like that's been a while, maybe go back and remember what it was like at first. Second, he tells you to repent. I think it's important for us to understand that it's not just you individually, although that's going to be included by the nature of it. Church of Ephesus, plural, repent. I don't know about you, but that must be a weighty thing. Just imagine. Imagine receiving this letter from the messenger. And the very words of Jesus himself is telling Embassy Church, there's some good things you guys got going on, but you need to repent. As a whole church, you're missing something. Corporately, Work collectively together in your gifts and your strengths to help because you have a big glaring weakness and it's that you don't love. Notice the warning that goes along with this call to repentance. If you do not, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And if you remember last week, we saw in chapter one, the lampstand is the symbolic image of the church. I will remove... So replace the word in there, church. I will remove your church from its place. So sure enough, they did. They did have their lampstand removed. Jesus did follow through with his words. Go to Turkey today. That's where Ephesus once existed, this church. And you'll be hard-pressed to find a single Christian that loves God or the gospel. I don't think we should take this warning lightly. Even if Embassy Church continues to exist, I want you to know that it won't just be by removing our lampstand, by actually removing the physical people in the church, because there are hundreds upon thousands of churches that are even around us today, this morning, that are gathering, and they have no light. They are spiritual gatherings that have denied the teaching of the resurrection, 
that they do not believe Jesus was the Son of God, but they call themselves Christian churches and they gather together and they say that they have hope for the world. But they preach no gospel. They don't provide any Jesus. They have no light to give the world. Jesus is the light of the world and we're to display that world through our preaching and our love of the gospel. So Embassy Church, don't just look around and go, well, we're, we're doing so far so good. He's not removed our lampstand. We've made it three whole years. Pat ourselves on the back. No. We could still be meeting. The question is, is there light? Is there light from the glory of Jesus being displayed and shared? And are we letting it shine before all men to see the good deeds that God is doing through us? So let us be village vigilant and hard-pressed to work hard at repenting if we get close to this and heed these warnings. And lastly, remember, repent, and then receive. Look at these last few words in verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So receive this. Do you have ears to hear this morning? These are the words that Jesus often gave when he was talking about his parables. Jesus was a funny teacher at times. It's kind of interesting to think that he would come sometimes go out into a crowd and say, well, there was a man and he was a farmer and he sowed some seed on the ground and the one seed did not grow. It was on hard soil. Another seed fell on the ground and then another one and then one seed grew. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, I'm out. Like that's how he taught. And oftentimes it seems like that phrase is saying that there will be people who will not understand what I'm saying because I'm speaking in symbolic imagery, which seems like is still being done here. And it's also because there'll be people that are hard-hearted and don't want to receive that what Jesus is trying to say is that I'm not going to be the conquering, killing, murdering captain hero that you thought the Messiah was going to be. So if you have ears to hear, hear. This is what my kingdom is actually like. That's the way Jesus taught. So this phrase should be familiar to you if you know the teachings of Jesus. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what we're to hear is that God's victory will come through your conquering. And if you read the rest of Revelation, you will know that conquering comes through suffering. That's why he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Because if he says, hey, let me fi finish this on a good, happy note. I'm Christ the King, and we're going to conquer, and we're going to defeat all the evil in the world. And you'll be like, yeah! But the conquering, it's not going to come because Jesus is going to come take it by force. It's going to come through suffering martyrs who die because of their great love for Jesus. And that's the message of Revelation. It's the message of the gospel, in fact. The tree of life that's being spoken of here, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God, is granted to those who understand that conquering happened through suffering because Christ was conquered. Christ was conquered by sin and death, but then rose victorious over that when he rose again from the dead. Now, a lot of you, because we've been just studying Genesis, which has been kind of an interesting thing that we went from one book of the Bible in the first book to now the last, Revelation, but it's good for us that Revelation has these images of tree of life. That should sound familiar, Genesis 2 and 3. And we remember in Genesis 2, there were how many trees? Two special trees. One was the tree of life. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil was the one they were not supposed to eat. The tree of life was to give them eternal life. 
to keep the communion with God. And so, not until Revelation 2 do we hear about this tree of life again. And it's as if all of those thousands upon thousands of years that there have been these angels that have been protecting from the paradise, he is telling the churches there is access back into the tree of life where you can have life eternal with God in paradise. That's clearly what's being said here, but I think there's a second thing that's being said here. Do you remember when I said that all of these letters have a historical context? Ephesus was known as having one of the great wonders of the world, which was the Artemis Temple. Go to Ephesus today, you will not find churches, but you will find the remains of one of the great wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. Read chapter 19 of the book of Acts and notice that when this church in Ephesus was started, so many people became Christians that the sale of the goddess idols of Artemis started to create an economic uproar that there was a riot and people said, no, these Christians got to stop their preaching of Jesus because it's, it's hurting our economy because we're so centered around Artemis, this goddess temple. So if you know anything about this church in Ephesus, you know that this temple and this history is a huge part of their church's existence. Now, what does that matter? Because the temple had what was called a paradise, a garden. And it's as if Jesus himself says, I know you, church. I know where you are. I know your works. And I know about Artemis. And I know about the paradise that she offers. But repent And do your works you did at first and receive, receive the gospel of my blood over your sins and resurrection from the dead because I will give you the keys to the true tree of life and the true garden. I think it's polemical. It's it's attacking the very core of the system of the way that they thought and the way they believed. The Ephesus community would have thought, oh, we have a tree. We have a garden. They had a prominent tree of life that they worshipped. He's saying, nope, the true one is only found through me. So if you have ears to hear this, go against the grain of all the world around you and put your faith in me. I hope and pray that you have ears to hear it and receive this word. Let's pray together.